Welcome to the Testimony Podcast, people of faith telling the stories that matter from their lives. I'm your host, Andrew Chamberlain, and I'm delighted that you can join us for this conversation. You can subscribe to the Testimony Podcast on all of the major podcast distributors and follow us on Twitter at TestimonyCast and Instagram at TestimonyPodcast. And welcome to episode 14 of the Testimony Podcast. My guest today grew up in a Jewish family and came to faith in Jesus as a student at the University of Cambridge. He spent a decade working in advertising in London and New York and later spent over 20 years as head of the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity. He has worked with leaders in the church from around the world and has written numerous books on discipleship and the Christian life. He was also the inspiration behind The Servant Queen and The King She Serves a tribute to Her Majesty the Queen in her 90th year, which chronicles the central role of the Christian faith in her life. My guest today is Mark Green. Mark has occupied leadership roles across the church for a number of decades, but at heart he has a simple and profound faith and a fascinating testimony of God's blessings to him in times of triumph and difficulty. This is his story. Mark, welcome to the Testimony Podcast. It's great to have you as my guest for this episode. Fantastic to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. So I'd like to start by inviting you just to tell us a little bit about your history and your background, how you've got to where you are today. Um, Well, I come from a Jewish, Scottish, Celtic-picked, Russo-Polish family. (laughs) My mother was the daughter of a man who fought in the Spanish Civil War against the fascists and used to teach socialism in into Glasgow um, ship workers and northern Welsh miners. And my father was uh, the second son of an Orthodox Jewish family in Gifnock in Glasgow, who uh, became and then came south. And they they married, they sort of eloped actually, because it was very frowned upon at that point for a Jewish man to marry a Gentile. And so I was brought up Jewish without any understanding for most of my life till I was about 18 of the the nuance that for many Orthodox Jews the line goes through the mother not the father but uh, my mother had agreed to bring us up in a Jewish family that's what we did Friday evenings uh, Sabbath lighting candles uh, saying the blessing over the wine um, all those wonderful uh, family and community traditions that we uh, celebrated and uh, to my children's confusion continue to celebrate some of them to this day just because they're so lovely and yeah, so that that was my sort of early childhood, and you know, as as you do, I'm a Southern Englishman, so I went to um, Southern English schools where there was Southern English spirituality, for want of a better term, and uh, was exposed to Christianity in a variety of ways through that. Uh, some of it burgeoningly strong, and some of it, I suppose, somewhat nominal. Um, then I went off to uh, Israel for a year; absolutely loved it. Spent a year in Israel, and still. As a sort of teenager, I was very interested in God, actually, mm. but um, in God. And uh, I've always felt sort of Jewish, but I was interested in God. And at school, I they let me they let me sit, lead a chapel service. I don't know how that happened, but I constructed this chapel service, which God approved. And how this occurs where a Jewish agnostic <laughs> leads a chapel service, I don't know, but that happened. And uh, one year in a chapel play, I got the part of Jesus. I think I was... 17 at the time. The following year, I got the part of God. (laughs) I have to say that after that, there was nowhere to go. So (laughs) I'm intrigued, actually, just to see what you might say about this. So when you prepared your chapel service, uh, I think you said you were 
Jewish agnostic and you were preparing this chapel service, do you think that God inspired and informed the way in which you prepared that service, even though you may have considered yourself an agnostic at the time? See, I, I mean, I, I don't know what I would have considered myself. I think clearly that's what, in a sense, I, I did definitely believed in God, I suppose, but I was agnostic about Christianity or anything else. Okay. And I suspect so, in some ways, quite loose within within that Christian community, you know. So there was one chaplain who was very, very clearly a believer, you know. I, I don't know about the other guy, he seemed fine to me, but there was one because I got to know him. Yes. Very clearly a believer. And I really don't know now whether... I mean, it'd be interesting, I suppose, if they're probably both dead, but I mean, whether they thought he's clearly looking for something, why don't we just let him do this? Yes, yes, yeah. Do you know what I mean? And it's not going to do a great deal of harm. You know, he had some hymns that he likes and he had some readings and, you know, it's probably entirely sort of ethical, really, you know, um, yeah. rather than God-centred. But um, no, I mean, I, I can remember number of significant encounters during that time and one of them curiously um it became something of a pattern i, I remember I had a, a good friend that we played um we played sports together and he was also i did modern languages and he was in modern languages and there weren't a lot of us in that particular set and he had come from quite a strong christian family he wanted to go and do a bible study with the assistant chaplain who was a youngish man quite red-cheeked and not cool he wasn't cool and we went to his um, rooms or whatever he had at the time, and we were going through the Gospel of John together. And I remember my friend asking um, this chaplain in what was an all-boys school. Okay, this was an all-boys school. <laughs> he said, uh, so do you think sex before marriage is wrong? And I think this was a live issue. It was more a live issue for my friend than it was for me, I think, at that particular moment. You know, the chaplain responded by saying, Yes, I do. I think that is what the Bible says. And he and he went bright red and he said, well, I am a virgin and I expect my wedding night to be one of the most embarrassing <laughs> evenings of my entire life. And I just have never forgotten that because he made himself, I mean, it's a boys school. Yeah. He made himself immensely vulnerable at that point. Yes. Not in, not in the orthodoxy of his response, but in the personal nature of his response. Yes, yes. And so for the sake of the gospel, he was prepared in a way to, to risk looking foolish within what was, you know, a late 70s, very liberal uh, Britain culture. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, good for him. Yeah. So you went to school, you went to university in due course. Uh, what did you do there? What did you get up to there? Well, after I, I came back from um, Israel, having been on a kibbutz, I, I thought I would do Arabic. Okay. You know, cover off Arabic, having learned a bit of Hebrew. And they persuaded me to do Arabic and Hebrew, which gave me headaches. So I ended up just doing Hebrew studies for four years, not out of any religious motive, actually, more sort of culture, more interested in, in the literature. I just, I actually loved, loved that course. And I was actually went to Cambridge, which is where you're speaking from this very day. And my college, Trinity Hall, my parents wanted me to be a lawyer. So I went up, uh, Trinity Hall is famous for lawyers and every third person that you meet in, in a London court, apart from the criminals, is likely to be somebody from Trinity Hall, very likely to be judged, prosecuted or defended by somebody from Trinity Hall. Anyway, there it was. And um, there were loads of Christians there. I mean, just it, there were lots of Christians and uh, the Cambridge Christian Union, I think had sort of seven or 800 people going on a Saturday evening. 
to its meetings. It was very, very strong. And I had a number of them in my college and they they witnessed to me very faithfully over the years. And uh, but for a long time, I was one of those people who was very happy to have the conversation, actually quite interested in the conversation. But it was a kind of, oh, this is an interesting conversation rather than does this have any bearing on my life? And then my last year, I'd, I'd got a back injury. I couldn't play hockey all the time. I just, I'd split up with my girlfriend. So I had quite a lot of time on my hands. And um, this guy started to come talk to me after, after the exam season, actually, who had become a Christian, a new Christian, a guy called Steve Wexler. And Steve, he was a bright guy, but somehow we weren't having the apologetics debate. He just didn't operate that way. Somehow it became much more personal with him. Mm. What do you think of this? What does this mean for you? I don't know how he did it. But in those conversations, somehow between exams and leaving Cambridge, um, he got me to the point where I, I was somehow open. And I remember quite vividly the moment when I became a follower of Jesus. And it was in my um, downstairs room, um, student room. And uh, he was by the bay window and I was the other side of the room. And he, he asked me, so would you like to accept Jesus then? since we've had this conversation. And I said, yes. And he no doubt led me in an entirely kosher prayer, <laughs> which none of which I remember. He was, you know, he'd been led to Christ by the navigators, which, you know, they would they would have the right prayer to pray. You'd be under no doubt that it was the right prayer. And I remember afterwards, I'd share my testimony and, I, you know, I was trained to share my testimony, if you like. And I would say things like, well, you know, this guy came and challenged me to consider who Jesus was and, I went away and thought about it and I realized that he was who he said he was. So I thought I'd, you know, I'd give my life to Jesus and so on. And that's, that's not what happened at all. My intellectual arrogance was so strong that I even managed to, to sort of distort what actually happened. What happened in that room on that day was that the presence of God was there. And I was almost wooed by him. It was almost like I was drawn into Christ. It was almost like he was there and it was an embrace. And I was being, I was willingly allowing myself to be taken into his arms. And so did I turn from sin at that particular moment? No, I don't think I did. I probably said the right words, but I don't think that's what happened. You know, I think I turned to Jesus as the answer, as 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 reality, as as hope. But I turned to him, which, of course, is a turning away, but not a conscious turning away from all of that. No, no, no. And something happened in the room. And I, I did change. I'm not saying that I suddenly became <laughs> yeah, pure as the driven snow in every aspect of my being. That certainly didn't happen. But something happened. I was different. From that moment. I mean, later, you know, I took the four spiritual laws, you know, a year later, I walked through the four spiritual laws and I prayed that prayer. But that I was just sort of belt and braces. I was just making sure. And I remember um, going for interview when I went to interview to see whether it was the right time for me to be to go to Bible college. And I think the first time that I went for interview, the principal counseled me that I wasn't quite ready. And I think he was certainly right. But you had to share your testimony. So I shared this testimony slightly sheepishly because it's not your orthodox, in a sense, orthodox testimony. And he said, well, I don't think anyone understands more than half a doctrine when they become a Christian. <laughs> After all, we're dead in our sins. It's all of grace. The notion that suddenly I've understood all of this and it's clear to me between yesterday when I was completely not thinking in the right way and today. No, maybe for some people that's the case, but for me that wasn't the way it happened. No. Okay. 
I want to move on to your personal companionship with Jesus. And I wondered if you could share with us one or two moments in your life where you have just felt the companionship of Christ close to you in a situation or sitting in the circumstances you're in. Can you tell us a little bit about one or two instances like that? Yes, I, I can. Yeah. Um, yes, certainly. Well, I suppose there was a period in, in our family's life when um, my eldest son was actually extremely ill and um, yeah, extremely ill. And uh, we we had prayed, loads of people had been praying, you know, um, he was in his late teens at the time and we were exhausted. It was as a family, you know, um, it was, had a tremendously significant impact on his siblings, you know, to see their older brother in, in such pain and, and, um, and so distressed. And, you know, my wife had to give up work. I, you know, to cut down on my hours and all kinds of stuff. Um, and I, I took my eldest son to uh, Soul Survivor one Sunday evening. At that particular time, that was when the youth, the youth met on Sunday evening and uh, they would all be standing or sitting uh, during the service and old people like me would have chairs at the back <laughs> because nowhere we, were we sitting cross-legged on the floor for an hour and a half. Anyway, the service goes on and I was separate from my son. He was having a, a, a good time at that particular one, but it was really, it had been a, a brutal time. And the worship leader, who's actually very, um, that evening was a man called Adam Pryor, who was one of the great youth workers, really. He still is a youth worker. He's into his mid-40s. He just loves young people. He's quite laid back. And he, he said in the middle of the service, which you're not meant to do, he said, um, I think we're meant to pray for leaders. And uh, my old friend Mark Green at the back, I think you need to come forward for prayer. And I, I wasn't particularly emotional that evening. I wasn't particularly into it. I was exhausted, you know, that was uh, it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I went forward for prayer and um, these two young men, one on my left, one on my right, and no one's, you know, no one else goes forward for prayer as it happens. <laughs> the guys leading the service doesn't come anywhere near me. These two people just come and put their one hand on each shoulder. That's it. They don't say anything, which is the soul survivor way. You wait for the spirit. Yeah, yeah. And suddenly the spirit comes upon me. And, and I am, you know, this has only ever happened once before, but this was, I'm laughing, I'm crying with laughter. I could have stopped at any moment. This is after a really significant time of deep distress. I'm slapping my thigh. The tears are coming down. The joy of the Lord descends upon me, if you like. Just an amazing moment. Mm. And I guess I, you know, I was not out of control. I could have stopped it had I chosen in a sense at any moment. Mm. In a way, you know, I wasn't I wasn't hyping anything up. Nobody was hyping anything up. There wasn't any loud music. There wasn't any. I think somebody was twanging on the guitar. It was not anything, you know, from beep, 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 you know, nothing. And uh, so I had this amazing experience in the Lord. And the other aspect of this story is that one of the young men who had his hand on my shoulder was my very ill son. Mm. At one level, I'm thinking, so, Lord, do you think you could have just moved the beam a foot to the left? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. But clearly he saw that. He saw once again, because he'd seen things like this before. He's prayed for people before and, yeah. and so on. But he saw that. 
And that was not the end. I mean, clearly I needed it for all kinds of reasons. And it strengthened me to enable me to, to strengthen my family and continue on. And that was obviously a blessing to him. But but it's one of the mysteries of God. That wasn't the moment that God healed him. But there's no question he was there. And it was an amazing blessing, mm. really. An amazing blessing. Mm. So I've had a number of those. They don't happen to me every week, but I've had a number of those where the Lord has clearly come in when I've been a long way exhausted or or not. Something needs to happen. Do you want to pick another one and tell us about these things? Well, another one, I suppose, would be, um, I do have a number like that. They're more spectacular. But I'll tell you one which is less spectacular, but was really significant to me, was um, I was at home one evening I was at home and I, I'd written a book called uh, Fruitfulness on the Front Line, which is a book about the many ways in which people can be fruitful for God out in the world. Mm. In other words, yes, we're fruitful for God by being a messenger for the gospel, but we're also fruitful for God by modelling godly character, by making good work, by ministering grace and love, by moulding the culture around us, the atmosphere, the, the way the family works, the way the team works, the way the organisation works, and by being a mouthpiece for truth and justice. I was at home thinking we produced material it's doing very well and it's been well received and so on and I was praying I was saying well in a prayerful attitude you know and I was saying Lord I, I really would like to think of somebody who is in the public eye who's a Christian in the public eye who embodies these these six m's as we call them you know who who actually embodies this holistic fruitfulness and it came to me and it came to me with force and it came to me with weight. And the answer was the queen. And I suddenly thought, it's true. Does she model godly character? Yes, she does. Look at all the stories of how she does her work, not only diligently and thoroughly and thoughtfully and, you know, for the sake of the nation, but actually goes out of her way for a journalist, flying them, flying them back on her jet because their wife is about to have a baby. I mean, there's all of these little stories of grace and kindness. Look at this woman who's, who's you know, single-handedly, effectively, managed to create a context of hospitality for the, all the Commonwealth leaders. She's brought that group of people together. How did that happen? How did she manage to take all these people whose countries we exploited <laughs> when we were the empire, turn them into friends, who are all pleased to see us and her. I mean, so it's just amazing. And then, you know, obviously, so she does speak up for truth and justice within the confines of her abilities and her, her role. And then she gives us the gospel, or at least she gives us a testimony of her trust in Jesus every Christmas. She does, yeah. So here was this woman, and I thought, I've never actually heard anybody say this this way before. So this is an important message about the Queen, that she's not just a lovely person. And it came to me as forcefully. And I thought, I've got to get this message out. This, this needs to be a book or something. And uh, but I didn't have any time to write a book. And then about six weeks later, I was curiously, I mean, I, I don't get invited to these places very often. I happened to be at... Uh, at Lambeth Palace, the Archbishop's lecture on evangelism. Not that he speaks like that. And I walk into the room where the canapes, very nice canapes, were being served. 
And I bump into a man called Roy Crown, who runs something called Hope. And he's he's a man who's who I've worked with a lot, and he's often asked me to write things, which he then gives away for free <laughs> and pays me nothing. <laughs> anyway, and I, I say, Roy, I've got an idea for you. And he says, that's a fantastic idea. Let me talk to the archbishops about it. Da, 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 da. And I say, well, it's yours. And when I said it's yours, I felt painful. I thought, I just gave this thing away. No, what an idiot. <laughs> anyway, six weeks later, he comes to where well, I was then working. Well, I am still London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. We have a meeting with somebody from the Bible Society, Paul Woolley from the Bible Society. And he says, we think this is a great idea. And um, so I get to write it, basically, and uh, had a co-writer called uh, Catherine Butcher who helped me. And the Queen writes the forward, or, you know, which has never happened before. She's never written a forward for anything or allowed a forward to go for out in her name. Never. It's the first time in the history. And what we're doing with this book is we're using it to celebrate her 90th birthday. And as it's priced at a pound and it's 64 pages and it's beautifully produced by a fantastic designer and a million copies walk off the shelves. And it's called, you know, the servant queen and the, and the king she serves. Mm, fantastic. But every stage I just saw the hand of God, the idea, the providential meeting uh, with Roy, the fact that he knew to talk to the right person, the Bible Society, who are, the Queen is a patron of the Bible Society. The fact that we got a forward from the Queen, how does that happen? The fact that the designer got the design right first time, that, that's very rare. You know, you just, here's the idea. What do you think? Yes. Mm. <laughs> and a million copies. I mean, I think if the girl on the train hadn't been made into a movie that year, we would have been the bestseller that year. <laughs> Not the, and all the money went to charity. Yeah. All money went to charity. So, you know, we, we didn't make, you know, I didn't make any money. None of the people, in a sense, made money on it in that sense. All went to the charities. But there was no doubt for me that the Lord was in that. There was a message about our sovereign he wanted to get out, but also a reminder to me that it is possible to be in the public eye. The most famous woman in the world is an example mm. of a whole life disciple. Mm. 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 And as you say, to kind of very graciously remind us of it every Christmas. It's amazing. Yeah. There's a couple of things I want to pick up on from what you've said there. I mean, these are wonderful stories and um, it sounds like you've got more of them, but that, that's, that's, that's fabulous. That story. Um, just taking that, in fact, taking those two stories that you've given us, I wondered if you could comment on how you, you understand God operating in terms of letting a physical impact happen on someone. And how does that work with him changing somebody or changing circumstances or creating an idea or moving someone on? How does the experience work with the, the stuff that he wants to do with somebody? Well, I'm not sure I, I, I claim to fully understand it. Um, I think, first of all, one of that in that first story, there is a mystery. And the mystery is, here's a whole family praying for one person and the Lord, on the surface, chooses to bless another one. Mm. So there's his sovereignty and his grace, and somehow that was also visible uh, to that person who, in a sense, needed it more. You, you know, it's like sometimes we pray for a parking space and the Lord gives us one, and yet there's a war in Syria. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. you, can't, you can't quite compute it outside 
the wisdom of God compared with our own wisdom. But I think what I get from some of these stories and the stories I hear of God working in other people's lives in all kinds of different ways, and and I think that that's one of the things that you know, that sense sense there isn't a formula. Is this sense of a gracious Father wanting the best for each of His people and to enable them to fulfil their purposes mm. within the context of what His bigger purposes are, and we don't necessarily see our role in that. So I I find myself trusting in God really. Um, mm. Clearly, there are things we do that put ourselves in a position where he can choose to act or not, if you like. He's more likely to speak to me through the word of God if I read it. <laughs> yes, I, I get what you're saying. Yes, yeah. You know, there's, I guess it's almost like there's one way to make sure you definitely don't get that blessing is to just not put yourself in a place where you might get it. Yeah. Yeah. But there's no tap there. No. It's a mystery then in a way who knows what god's going to bless what idea he's going to bless who knows who he's going to bless it's just sometimes we just don't see see the rhyme and reason in it ourselves do we i suppose no yeah. um I, another thing i wondered if you were, could comment on there will be people listening to this who might say well i you know i'm, I'm maybe they're they'd consider themselves Christians or followers of Jesus or whatever. And they'd say, I've never had one of them. I've never had one of those kind of, you know, plugged into the mains moments. Where's my, where's my kind of super spiritual moment? Doesn't, does, am I less of a Christian or does God not love me as much as he loves you, Mark, or, or whatever it is? What, what might you say to that person who's kind of longing after one of those kind of moments, but they just, they don't know almost what you're, what you really mean by it. Cause they haven't experienced it. Yes. Well, I mean, the first thing I'd say is there are no such things as what you might call super Christians or elite Christians and so on and so forth. Or, you know, you know, I've got stories of plumbers. I've got stories of electricians. I've got stories of God working through all kinds of people in all kinds of contexts. And one of the things that we try to help people do is to see that God has probably already been working through you. But you may not be able to see it. And one of the reasons why lots of people can't see that God has been working through them is because the set of criteria that they've been given often inadvertently is what does, what does fruitfulness look like? Well, if fruitfulness is a, an evangelistic conversation with someone, and if I'm driving a truck all day, I don't have a lot of opportunities, except maybe on the two-way radio a bit and maybe at the truck stop. Okay, so I have some opportunities. I do actually have some opportunities. Oh, look, I've got some opportunities. Yes. If what's defined as fruitful is the evangelistic conversation, then I've missed all the other ways in which God can, might work through me. Or if God only works in particular sorts of places and we've been told, well, you know, bring them to church or bring them to a church event and that's where God heals and that's where he works. No, he heals on the 10th floor of a Madison Avenue advertising agency. Mm. Mm. So sometimes people can't see it. And a lot of the work we do is to enable people to say, oh my goodness, I am in a place. And I remember, I remember, you know, Thelma, I mean, it's one of my favorite stories. Thelma's 93 years old when, when this, this happens. 93, okay. And she's in a Baptist church in the West Midlands. And it's a very small, and when I say very small, I mean 12 people or so in this church. Fantastic minister who's become and you know, come to grow the church and look after the people and make it missional. And 
she takes um, the whole church, all 12 people, if you like, through this thing that we did, life on the front line. In other words, how do you live out in the world in the places you normally go? Where do you normally go? And Thelma's been in the church a while. She loves the church. She helps a bit, but she doesn't really think she's got a mission field. I've got a place where God can really work for me. So she suddenly realized that she does. And her front line, her mission field is the um, is the Asian convenience store at the bottom of her road that she goes to. Now, she's 93 and she's not as quick on her pins as she was when she was 89. <laughs> and actually, her friends are a little bit worried that she's going to fall over in the rain or in the snow or whatever. And they want to do her shopping for it. She said, I'm not doing that. I'm going to the shop. These are the people I'm going to bless them. And that's where she goes and she prays for them and she blesses them and she hugs them. And actually, after a while, the family take to her so much that they carry her shopping home for her. So she now got the walk and hurt them in her house and so on. But she's exhilarated because she's seen that where she spends time, God can work through her. Mm-hmm. I think it begins. It doesn't necessarily begin with some grand thing. I mean, I think, you know, yes, God calls us to pray for healing. And if we do that, he may well stretch out his hand and heal someone and it will be a miracle. <laughs> God calls us to make peace with people and we may not have the courage in the conversation. And he gives us courage on that day to say the right thing in the right way. and you know that you know he he changes us to enable us to do that our boss may be awful and we pray for them for three years and then suddenly there's a breakthrough Mm. or not and we think we're a failure and then this is a true story we leave feeling like a failure i've worked for this man i'm 28 years old i'm a christian i've prayed for him nothing's happened and the person who comes in to replace me calls me up after three weeks this is a true story about this particular woman calls this woman up after three weeks and says how did you do it? This man is in totally, totally impossible. It's the worst person I've ever worked for. But everyone around here says that you handled him so well, that you were so calm, that you never took your frustration, your anger, and the way that he's treated you so badly about on anybody else. How did you do it? I've got to find out. So she couldn't see it. Yeah. But everyone else around her could. Yeah. And to everybody else, that looked like a miracle. Yeah. And there are people, aren't there, who are looking after and probably more these days, who are looking after people who are sick. And they do it for years with incredible tenderness, amazing patience. And we don't see that, but the Lord does. And by his grace, they're able to pour out love on those people that they care for in ways that if we were in the room, we'd probably just be awed at. Mm. So what I'm trying to get at is, I think that in the ordinary, the Lord wants to be at work. Yes. And when we have a broader sense of how, what that might look like, we begin to see that he often is. Yeah. Okay. So some of the things that you've said about maybe being in the workplace and being, you know, Monday to Friday in, in our day-to-day lives reminds me of uh, something that a wise lady in the church I was in once said to me, we were talking about how do you find out what God wants you to do? And she just said, do what's in front of you whatever you know and in, in, that's often the thing to do so and i wondered if you could just talk to us a little bit about that how could we see what's in front of us to actually and uh, maybe broaden out what we think god might call us to do so it's not just an evangelistic talk perhaps but it is it is kindness or generosity or listening or whatever it is what how can we how can we try and be aware of what's immediately around us and what god might be calling us to do yeah that's that's a that's a a wonderful question. I think I suppose the first 
move is to believe that this ordinary task or this ordinary situation is important to God. In other words, to believe that God did indeed make all things and therefore all things are important to him. He did indeed um, think of every human being on the face of the planet before the foundation of the earth. He did indeed knit them in their mother's womb. And he sent his son to shed his blood on the cross to reconcile all things to himself, which, which means the whole cosmos and everything in it. So God is interested in everything he created because it's his and it remains his. And he's interested in redeeming it all. That's why he sends his son and renewing and refreshing it. So everything we do has an impact on either people created in his image or on the planet in which he's given us to steward. So nothing is insignificant. Mm. If you like, in terms of the Bible, when, when Paul writes to Colossians and says, whatever you do, work it with all your heart. And then he writes to slaves, even slaves doing all kinds of work, but often quite menial work, whatever you do. That is built on Colossians 1 to 15, 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God. Through him and by him, all things were made. That's what it's built on. So the moment we think God actually is interested in all of this, and therefore I can indeed give someone a cup of water, and not just a disciple of Jesus in his name, and that can be significant. Mm. Mm. Then when we, we look at that, we think, let's. then when we see that anything could be done in a different way, and we know this, we know that there's a big difference um, between being served by John at Costa and by Jim at Costa, if you know John and Jim. Yeah, yeah. Or whoever. You know, that some people are actually pleased to see you and make you feel fantastic, and other people, you are just the next person in the queue. Mm. You know, we know that there are some people, I mean, my plumber, Rob Edwards, became a Christian in his um, later life, in his 50s, I think, and he said, God created me to be a plumber. It's perfect for me. Mm. So... It is the first move is to believe that when God says, I'm interested in everything and I died for everything, he actually means it. Mm -hmm. So now Thelma goes to the shops and it's a mission opportunity. It's a mission trip. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, that can become an enormous burden unless you start asking God, where do you want me to focus? Because <laughs> otherwise, yeah, yeah. going to the shops. Could you come back before next Thursday? We may run out of food. You know, I've got all these people to talk to and I'm just waiting for somebody, so on and so forth. Anything can become a burden. I have a friend, I've written a story about them, Joyce and, and Martin, and they just, when they get, before they get on the bus, I mean, they don't do that so often now because of COVID, but beforehand, you know, they're going on the bus somewhere. They pray, Lord, lead us to somebody. And if they ask us about you, we'll, we'll talk about you and then we'll give them a tract. I mean, they've got thousands of stories. I mean, I say thousands. They probably have, but they can't remember them all. Just all these encounters with people. They just do their transport in a in that way. Now, you can't do that with everything. And I'm, I'm not trying to burden people with this. No. But you discern, where does God want me? You know, if you're a, a mum and you've got the school gate and you've got your children and you've got perhaps a mumlins and toddlers group and you've got your you know, a group of women you might do exercise with, or you might go to a book group, or you might do this, or you might do that. And then you've got your friends and your husband's friends or whatever. Well, they can't all be your focus. So I suppose you ask God to show you where, Lord, do you want me to focus? 
where amongst these various places that I do go, where I'm always open to you, Lord, mm. would you like me to do it? Mm. And then I think um, one of the key next steps is what I call the missional adjustment. So I was talking to a, a mum about the school gate and she was describing the culture on her school gate. And she said, oh, it's it's a very competitive place, the school gate. She says, um, of course, men and women, grandparents and uh, grandmums and granddads and carers and guardians take children to the school gate and sometimes siblings. But in this one, it's primarily, primarily women. It's the women she's talking about. She said, the alpha females, you say. And she's no slouch herself. The alpha females, they arrive and they're busy. They look busy. They march in. They drop their kids off. They're off all oh, so busy, so busy. And being busy is the mark of importance. By the way, that applies in lots of places. And yes, it does. to lots of men as well as women. But being busy, that's it. And uh, actually, she's quite busy herself. She's got three children of primary school age. And she's got a half-time job as well. So full-time mum, half-time job. She's pretty busy. And uh, so I, you know, so I was discussing, so what could you do different that would shift your experience here? What's the mission adjustment? So what she decided to do was to walk slowly. In other words, to communicate, I'm available. I'm not in a rush. Mm. Mm. So she sacrifices some of her alpha female status. But suddenly she's walking like a human being rather than like a, you know, you know, a greyhound out of the traps. And people are engaging with her. I, I called her up three weeks later, so how was going to, well, nothing incredible really, but I've started to have all these conversations with people and connecting with people. Mm. And you know, I just feel so much more human. But yeah. she's actually come against the idolatry of busyness. Yes. That was the culture of that place. Mm. She is a, an oasis of availability of course again it's not legalism she can't sometimes she's got to run yeah yeah you know sometimes she's late yes you know but it's more a posture so there's a missional adjustment and sometimes you know and often it's a little bit to do with something to do with a smidgen more time in that place i don't go to the supermarket thinking right i'm on a mission trip i've got two hours <laughs> to buy three pints of milk and five bananas. I'll just circle around forever. You kind of go relaxed. Yeah. You might join the longest bit of the queue because you might, or you might go to the, the checkout person that you think God has put on your heart. Or you, you yeah. know, this, this isn't, this, this vision for daily engagement is, it is discerned with God, but it can occur in any place. And I, mm. you know, and it, it is for anyone. As you can see, these stories are about retired people on the, on the buses or about people at the school gates, not just for workers with an obvious big front line, a place where they are engaging, even if it's on screen, 35, 40 hours a week. Yeah. So it's anyone, really, from what you're saying. It's yeah, it's anybody. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anybody. So we're coming to the end of our, our time now. And um, I wondered if there was... A couple of things to close with. I wondered if there were was any parting thought that you had that you wanted to share with us. And if you wanted to, I wondered if you could tell us about uh, the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity, where you, where you work now. I think um, what I, I suppose am growing to understand is that this is about the character of God. What kind of father is God? Is he the kind of father who's only interested supposing you're a teenager, in your GCSE results, how you're doing in maths, in your academics? Or is he the kind of father who's interested in 
in your ballet, in your love of Taylor Swift, in your interest in uh, green fashion, uh, in your incomprehensible enthusiasm for netball, what kind of father have we got? Mm. And the more one understands that this Abba father is not like a boss who's just giving us lots of things to do, but is someone who wants us to grow in everything mm. and to know us and be known by him in everything, then that's the picture. So when Jesus says, I'll be with you always, well, I think, well, yes, well, the spirit is in me. So the, the invitation, I suppose, that God is making, yes, it is to join a movement to change the world, yes. And mission is terribly important. But at root, this is an invitation to walk with Christ in all of life and to more consciously invite him into it in all of life. And therefore, there's this potential for this massive release of joy in all of life, whatever I might be doing. And of course, you know, I'm definitely not there yet. But there was an old monk called Brother Lawrence, who apparently wasn't that clever. But he did know God to the point where he practiced the presence of God while he was doing the dishes. And because God was with him doing the dishes, he didn't need to be in the, you know, he didn't need to be in the chapel all the time because he could be with God anywhere mm. and doing anything. Mm. So at root, this is a picture of God as wondrously beautiful and loving and rich, majestic, who wants the best for us and wants us to know and be known by him in all and to touch the ordinary with the spirit. Mm. And as for the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity, um, I'm so privileged to have been able to go and work there. It was founded by John Stott. And what we're trying to do is to envision and empower every Christian from the age of three to 103 with the vision, the knowledge that God really is interested in everything that they do and that they can walk with him in all of life day by day. And grow in that to be more fruitful in a rich and wide way so that they might indeed be channels of blessing whether it's in a hydrotherapy class an IBM boardroom or even in a theological college in Cambridge <laughs> and uh, mm. yeah that's what we do and we try to help pastors figure out how to you know disciple people in local churches like that okay and from time to time we're invited into theological colleges to help them too so that's our calling and if people wanted to find out a little bit more about the Institute, have you got a website or how do, how do people find out more? We do have a website. It's licc.org.uk. Okay. And there's um, lots on there, including a sort of weekly word for the week, which comes to a, an inbox near you based on the Bible and a weekly connection with culture, which is something about what's going on in culture from a biblical perspective. So lots in there. And you can even buy my books there, you know. I mean, if if anyone was so minded. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, Mark, thank you so much for your time. It's been a, a really fascinating conversation. Really enjoyed listening to your stories and your encouragement to us all. So, yeah, thank you very much. Okay. Thank you very much. What a joy to be with you, Andrew. I see you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Testimony Podcast. You can subscribe to the Testimony Podcast on all of the major podcast distributors and follow us on Twitter at TestimonyCast and Instagram at TestimonyPodcast.
If you want to find out more about the Christian faith and connect with someone to talk about your experiences or answer your questions, just go to www.christianity.org.uk from wherever you are in the world. That's www.christianity.org.uk. I look forward to sharing more of the stories that matter from people of faith with you soon. Until then, thank you for listening and goodbye.